want to start this morning with a story that happened to me on Friday. I attempted to donate blood on Friday through the Red Cross and arrived at the location where this takes place on this particular day. And anyone who's done this knows that your first stop is at a long table that's been set up. And there are volunteers there that have some type of spreadsheet showing names and times and the thing that people are donating. And giving blood now has a lot of dimensions. It's not just straight up giving blood. You can do, I don't even know what this means, but double reds or platelets, things like that. And, um, and that's on that spreadsheet. And then there are stickers that have name tags and times. And the two people that were behind the desk with the spreadsheet and the stickers and all of this kind of information were having trouble figuring something out. The woman was seated in front of the spreadsheet with her highlighter pen and her, and her ink pen. And the man was standing beside her. And he had on a polo shirt that said American Red Cross in the corner. And they were debating something, a person or the type of donation or whether they'd arrived. And they definitely had different opinions on this. And so the woman suggested to the man that he go and take this sticker and go and see, I think that's so-and-so, and see if they're here. And he said, no, that's not who's here. She said, fine, I'll do it myself. Here, you sit down at this spreadsheet and I'll go find out about the sticker. And so he does and she goes over and then she comes back, oh no, no, it's not him. I'm sorry, I'm a little confused. And he and she go back and forth. And all the while I'm standing there, but not only me, but another woman who actually arrived before me is standing there. And as we're witnessing all of this, I said what was in my head, which isn't always the right thing to do. I said, are you two married to each other? And they said, yes. <laughs> and the woman beside me looked at me and she said, I never would have thought to ask that. Which I took to mean, I can't believe you said that. And the man said, she's been telling me what to do for, I don't know, a few decades, 40 decades, maybe 40 years, 50 years, something like that. And I responded with a statement that could be taken many different ways. I said, so you're the lucky one. And he answered with all sincerity, yes, I am. We have a wedding that's taking place today. Jenny Fitzpatrick's youngest is getting married, Claire, here at 2 p.m. And I do premarital counseling with every couple before they get married. It's a requirement, if you will, to, be, to do marriages as a priest in the Episcopal Church. And the thing that I'm looking for in those times of meeting is to see if this, these two people are ready to love each other just as they are. Not because of who they hope they'll be. Not because of who they imagine they could be together. Not even because of the noble longing to make this person a better person through my love for them. Because anyone who's been married knows you marry the person you marry as they are. And as this couple demonstrated at that Red Cross table, we only grow more fully into who we are. Love can't have an agenda. It's not love if it has an agenda. And this is where we find ourselves in the gospel text today. 
Now, because I know that it's now September, and some of you come to church when it starts September again, you missed the first part of this gospel, which was last week, where Peter and the disciples are talking with Jesus. But, you know, maybe you've already heard this story before, so I'll just remind you. Jesus, is sa- Jesus says to the disciples, who do you say that I am? Well, first he asks, asks, who do people say that I am? And the disciples said, some people say that you're Elijah. Some people say that you're a prophet. And then Jesus says to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And it's Peter who says, you are the Messiah. Now, in this portion of the gospel, I can almost hear Jesus catch his breath and wonder that he's gotten it. Because, you see, Jesus couldn't say to people, I'm the Messiah. If he'd come and said to people, I'm the Messiah, they would have said, oh, really? Huh, neat. Tell me about that. Wouldn't you? Like love, it has to be revealed. Some of you know that I went to a Christian college, and one of the things that we women talked about together was how to address the young, socially awkward man who would come and say to you, any of us, you know, God told me that we should be going out together. (laughs) How do you let him down easy? How do you say, oh, you know what, God didn't give me that same message. Jesus is waiting for the disciples to discover who he is day in and day out by doing miracles and signs and teaching and reteaching, answering their questions, just being beside them. He's waiting for them to discover, and Peter discovers it. And I can almost hear Jesus do a little inhale. This can only be revealed to you by God. And so Jesus takes the next step into love to tell them what this means, that as the Messiah, he will go to Jerusalem and that he will suffer at the hands of people and that he will die on the cross and on the third day be raised again. Do you remember, those of you that have been in a deeply committed relationship, do you remember when you took that step more deeply into love? You professed your love, you and the other person, and then you thought, I have to tell them the rest of it. Do you remember that moment? When you knew that you could lose it all, but for not to tell would be to be disingenuous, to be dishonest? So you told them. Things that you knew could maybe make all of this go away that you'd had other partners, that you have an STD, that you were abused emotionally or physically, you committed a crime, you failed in some way. Any one of these could be a possible spot, a thing that you had to share. And you knew that it could all fall apart, and Jesus knows it can all fall apart when he comes forward and says to them, This is what will happen. And indeed, it's not what Peter has in mind. This isn't how it's supposed to go, Peter says. 
He takes him aside, perhaps out of love, out of respect, to let him know, no, 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 this isn't how it goes. And Jesus lets Peter know that he can't have an agenda in their love. There's no room for that. And so Jesus admonishes him with severe words. Because in love, there can't be an agenda. If there's an agenda, it's not love. When Bishop Cottrell was here, the third night he shared a story that I'm going to repeat for you. He reminded us on one of those nights that any good story is worth repeating, and so those of you who are here that third night, sorry that you're hearing it again. But he tells the story, Bishop Cottrell told the story of a Baptist preacher at the turn of the century in the southern part of the United States who spoke of the love that God has for God, for all creation, spoke of it with the illustration of a marriage. And the preacher in this crowd of people would invite people to imagine this marriage, which is a beautiful illustration because marriage is a covenant. It's just, it's a promise. I mean, it turns into a legal proposition because of the fact that we've got all this stuff going on in the world. But really, to be married is a promise that is made between two people. That's what we understand it as Christians. And so the preacher invited people to imagine that standing before him is the Savior and the sinner. And the preacher says, God, the preacher says, as if he's God, God's self, says to the Savior, Savior, do you take this sinner to have and to hold, to love and to cherish? from this time forth and forevermore. And Jesus replies, I do. And then the preacher turns to the other partner, the sinner, and says, sinner, do you take this savior to have and to hold, to love and to cherish from this point and forevermore? And then God waits. Another thing that happened this week is that I heard a confession. This person was racked with guilt and shame because of a stupid, big mistake. Well, it felt really big anyway, because it was so obviously a mistake. Something that he knew he shouldn't do, which only added insult to the pain of it. And he lamented. How could he have been so stupid? He was ready to do any number of things to make up for it. Anything to relieve the guilt and to acknowledge and to show the error of his ways. And I said to this individual, you are forgiven. You are forgiven because of God's forgiveness of me, which I pass on to you. That's all there is. There's nothing more that you need to do. As I looked at his situation, there's nothing more that you need to do but receive it. Now, isn't that the challenge? 
to be open to receiving the abundant, infinite love of God that God has for us. That was Peter's challenge. He wrestled with his own agenda of who he thought Jesus should be for the rest of his time with Jesus. We see it in John's Gospel. When indeed Jesus is taken captive and taken to the high, high priests, um, and Peter gets out there in the courtyard and he ignores, he denies that he's even known Jesus because this isn't how it's supposed to go. And I, I imagine that Peter's trying to lay low and keep quiet because he's got to figure out what to do now because this isn't how it's supposed to go. And it's only after Jesus' death and resurrection that he has the chance to interact with Jesus again. Again in John's Gospel, where Jesus is on the Sea of Galilee, calls out to the fishermen, that's Peter and the beloved disciple and others that are out in the Sea of Galilee, and invites them to come in, and they recognize who Jesus is as they sit there beside the fire with the fish. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, oh, you know I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Then he asks him a second time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. And then a third time he asks Peter, do you love me? And we hear in the Gospels, Peter's, we hear in the gospel Peter's disappointment that Jesus asks him a third time. Yes, Peter says, you know I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Peter is going to discover the abundant, infinite love of God as he goes forward from that time. When you read in the, in the book of Acts, about the struggle of the church to make sense of what to do with the fact that Jesus' love is going out to all people, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles too. And that God, through Christ, is welcoming all people in. And Peter is racked with concern because now what do we do with the Jewish law? And he debates with Paul about circumcision and its necessity or lack thereof. And God comes to Peter again and shows him, no, it's for all people, this message. And because Jesus, going to Jerusalem, takes our agenda onto himself. It's our agenda that kills him. And he offers us love instead. And so Paul, in his letter to the Romans, shows us how to feed God's sheep. How to take God's infinite, gracious, loving mercy into the world. There's a whole list there of what to do including if people are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Because in doing so, you empower them to do the same to others. You give them coals from your fire, which have to be carried on the head, otherwise they'll burn the hand. You put the coals, you give them coals from your fire to take to their fire so that it can be lit. That's what we're to do. That's what Jesus asks of us. It takes us a whole lifetime to live into that. It takes us opportunity after opportunity to say, when we are offered the Savior's love, for us to say yes. 
I accept that love. I do. Amen.